the temptations are so strong as a business owner to go broad, to go wide, to spread yourself, to engage with other opportunities. And what you need to do is you need to stay focused on that niche that you know you can serve and you can generate a lot of love from. And that makes sales conversations easier. That makes proposal development easier. It makes the whole thing easier. And if somebody's listening and saying, but I don't want to be a niche. I want to be like massive. I'm like, but then grow slowly outward as you go do that. It's the biggest piece of advice I usually give an entrepreneur. Welcome back to the Honest Marketing Podcast, where you learn proven strategies to grow your business without selling your soul. I'm your host, Travis Fallbritton, and my guest today, Sean Campbell, really shared a lot of great nuggets and insights when it comes to selling and marketing online, both on a client side, on a team side. And so I'm really excited about digging into some of those specific things. You know, some of the big takeaways for me were uh, how to really show up in a professional way when you're doing client side interactions and virtual meetings and things like that. Because you know, let's face it, we're all selling things online nowadays. If you're in a B2B space, that's what you're doing. You're connecting with people, you're Zooming, you're doing phone calls. So share some really practical things that him and his team do to really show up in a fantastic way and leverage that to really make those uh, interactions fantastic. And then we talked quite a bit about what he is doing with his business, just sharing his own practical things of things that they're doing to both position themselves and their company as the forefront of their niche and their industry. And then he shares some really counterintuitive, but I think very poignant and important uh, thoughts around how to succeed in marketing and sales in 2023 and beyond. So can't wait for you guys to dig in. Here it is, my conversation with Sean Campbell. So Sean, tell me a little bit about the origin of your company, Cascade Insights, and then just like a 60-second elevator pitch of what you do, just so anyone listening has a little bit of context about where you're coming from and where your expertise is. Yeah. Um, well, I'll start with Cascade and then how I'm related to Cascade. So with Cascade, um, I generally say the following. We are um, only focused on B2B tech. So I sometimes summarize that as those things that are not sold in a Best Buy. Uh, and so it's all <laughs> businesses buying software and cloud services from businesses. That's our target market. And for those organizations, we either help them position. Uh, and I think of positioning as a verb, like all of our clients are not like in a position or trying to identify the position. They're always kind of moving around a little bit based on what's happening to them in the market. And so we will sit there and help them figure that out through really good research uh, and marketing activation, but research at the top, like it, we're, we're a research first company. So that'll be like, you know, um, things like market segmentation, identifying your ideal customer profile, you know, stuff like that. And then the other side of the business is helping people say the right things to the right people. Um, and so once you know where your position is, how can you message effectively? And so we'll do things like buyer persona research and message testing and competitive landscape analyses. And, you know, are you kind of pitching the right um, features to the right audiences and those kinds of things. And that that's really the pillars of who we are. Um, and so that encompasses a fair amount underneath that, but that's that's what we do for companies. And my journey, um, I, it's weird because I was going to be a college professor uh, and I that's, that's what I thought I was going to do. I love teaching. And 20 plus years later, um, I've owned businesses for that amount of time. And um, just two. Um, cause you always meet the guy at the networking event that says, you know, I've been in six startups in six years. Um, I just want to say that person's not accomplished. Let's just put it that way. <laughs> um, and so I don't care how they, 
how they explain those six startups. If you're in six companies in six years and all of them started in, I mean, anyway, that's, that's my digression about the whole like fail fast, um, BS anyway. So, um, but, uh, I, I have found that owning a business has a surprising and almost say an amazing ability to turn you into an educator um, and teacher. And some of that is probably just how I'm wired. Like I've said for years, I'm pathologically incapable of learning something and not teaching it to somebody else. Even all my hobbies involve some version of like coaching, educating, Hey, I like fishing. So I'm going to go teach everybody around me how to fish. And I, I don't do that in an overbearing way. I, and I, you know, I, you'd all have to trust me listening, but like ask my friends and family, but like, it's just a, it's the way I'm wired. I like, I like to educate and a business I came to realize especially on the services side, does a lot of that. And then the funny thing is we do research, uh, which is also typically the life of a professor. Uh, so I have this kind of weird thing that I, I found a very academic, in a good way, lifestyle, but it wasn't in the university setting. Uh, and um, that's kind of been my journey. So it's kind of, it's kind of interesting how it worked out. Well, and I appreciate you, uh, you know, having that teaching mentality, because I'm going to be peppering you with all kinds of questions that are completely self-serving, but I imagine Fair lots enough. of other people benefit from it too. <laughs> uh, the, the first question I have for you is, you know, you've been, you've been in the landscape for a while, uh, longer than most. Um, you know, typically you measure uh, online businesses in months instead of years nowadays, it seems, with how fast technology is, is evolving. How have you seen sales and marketing shift, both in your specific niche, but then overall, over the last couple of years with uh, COVID and, and everything that's kind of happened in the shift to remote and now kind of like back to hybrid and, you know, some of companies saying, no, we're fully back. Like how, how are all these cultural underpinnings and larger shifts impacting the way that B2B businesses are marketing and selling to their clients that are experiencing these things on the other side as well? Well, I'll say one thing initially from a skill standpoint, I think um, one of the things that COVID and everybody going to work from home, which I'm incredibly passionate about is the right way to go. Um, and I'm totally happy to talk about that. Cause I think, I think there's so many things that are wrong in the discourse now, just, just to give you one as a preview, if we ended up talking about it, everybody wants to talk about return to the office is like, that's where productivity lies. What's interesting is implicit in that is y'all worker bees weren't productive. You know what I never hear in that is, um, hey, managers, did you know how to manage people when they weren't standing in front of you? Because that's a different skill. Because I've done that for 20 years. And I can tell you it's different. It's different. And, and, and I've had an office too. So I've seen how it works in the other uh, kind of view. Um, but I would say the biggest thing from a skill standpoint that I would say is true of uh, particularly salespeople is it exposed the need and the ability to write well. Um, the best example of this I could think of was a client of mine a couple months into COVID said to me, and, it, and he's a nice guy. This is going to sound really pointed, but he, it wasn't a jerky kind of comment. It was more like an educational comment. He said, um, I had no idea how dumb my colleagues were until they had to write me to convince me to do something. Um, and his point was, that office environment where you shuffle over to Bob or Mary and you start the conversation with like, Hey, you know, that thing we were talking about yesterday. And, you know, you just kind of ignore the first 20 seconds of that warm up. You can't do that in written communication. 
And so when sellers were thrown into, I can't get on a plane, I can't go somewhere, I can't do that, uh, what I noticed was anybody who had that figured out, you know, particularly on the smaller services side where, you know, a lot of it was like in-person relationship building, um, you, you could dominate. I mean, we had a pretty darn good marketing engine at our size. Um, and I think that's probably being a little self-effacing. I mean, just from what I've heard other people say about it, like in terms of what it creates and, um, and we were really good at, you know, written communication. And when everybody had to go use Google as their therapist to go find a vendor and they couldn't just go meet the guy down the hall, it really worked out for us. Um, and I, so I think that's the, I think that's the underrated skill, you know? And, and the other thing is I, I think people give too much of a pass on writing for salespeople in particular, um, because there's, there's kind of this thing of like, well, I'm good at one or the other, you know, the marketer says I'm good at writing, but I'm not good at speeches. And the salesperson says I'm really good at speaking, but I'm not good at writing. And, Hey, if you're over 30, you can't blame the educational system anymore. It's you, right? It's you. You yeah. didn't get better at it, right? And and I I think, and arguably I would say it's, even as I've trained sellers over the years, right? I would say it's the one thing if they got better at, they would do a better job. And I would say now that, now that more selling is remote and it will be remote more than it was in years past. I mean, you could almost graph it. Like when I started, you know, 20 years ago, I'm 52, right? So when I started 20 plus years ago with a business, we decide that Microsoft's going to be our first account. And there's reasons that happened that I could get into, but it, it's kind of semi irrelevant. So my first experience was trying to learn how to sell Microsoft, um, in the early aughts when, they own 97% of computing, which, which is so weird to think about, right? I mean, imagine if, if 97% of phones were iPhones. We would think that's bizarre, right? But that's what they were. They were 97. I mean, I, it's, it's just hard to fathom. Even for me who lives through it, it's like, really? Do they have that much dominance? Like, I don't even know. We, we're never going to really get back to that um, in any, you know, and, and probably good, good that we're not going to. But um, so... You know, I was on a plane and I was in meetings and I was there and you, you know, and that was the only way to win a deal. And you could almost graph the size of deal that you can create without ever showing up. Right. I, I, you, I seriously, I should have made a graph. I probably could have. And like, you know, I, you can sell a, a deal of almost any size now, it seems like without showing up in person. And so, but what does that mean? Well, you're going to write a lot of emails and you're going to write a lot of communication and it's not all going to be in Zoom, you know? And I, um, one quick second thing too, I think I saw some guy, um, talking about this. I, I, I think this is related, but I'll just shove this in here at the end here. But there, I saw a post the other day that just kind of incensed me. And usually I don't feel that way about posts. I mean, if you, if you feel that way about the internet all day long, it's going to be a short life for you. You know what I mean? So like, but there was this post and I was just like, grr, you know, and the guy was like kind of softly slapping away at, you know, you can't really build an awesome company unless you're in the same building. And I'm like, oh, fiddlesticks. No, that's not true. And so, but at one point he's like, Zoom has this low pass filter on emotion and, you know, you can't really engage in the same way. And I'm like, has this guy forgotten about YouTube? I mean, how many people watch YouTube? I think it's engaging. I think so does the planet. And that's when only one person is talking. So nine times out of 10. So I, I, 
I think it's I think it's a fallacy to say like, well, Zoom is doing to it. And you know, no, 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 no. There's so many reasons why that does or doesn't work for you virtually, but it's not just the idea that we're talking to a 2D screen and watching one. Um, you can make it engaging. People could quibble about whether or not your or my conversation right now is engaging, but I think we know there are plenty of engaging videos on YouTube. And we watch those and we engage with those. So it is not the idea of just 2D to 2D. Uh, and, and so anyway, I just, I think, so I would add to that. If you're a seller and you don't know how to build a really good audio visual environment for yourself, I would just stop right now and go buy those tools. Um, because too often I even to this day get a phone call or an interaction with somebody and I'm like, you're talking to me with the tool set of five years ago. I mean, there is no excuse for like three, $400, maybe even less. You could sound like you're sitting in a studio. Um, and there's no excuse for not having those tools. Yeah. There's always been a tendency to villainize new technology, uh, as the scapegoat for, why certain things don't go the way that you want them to or why productivity goes down or why you're not hitting certain metrics. It's like, well, in the past I would fly out there and we'd close all these deals and handshakes and bars and, and now I have to zoom. And so that's, it zooms the problem. I want to circle back to what you said about writing though. Cause I think that's super key, especially in a B2B environment where you have longer sales cycles from cold prospecting to closing where you're not looking at a week of emails, you're looking at like eight months of emails. Like maybe you get them right at the beginning of their their budget and you have to wait for the full budgetary year to finish up before you can even unlock more funding to move forward. And how the, the persistence that you need to have in continuing to write those emails and continuing to foster that relationship on those longer sales cycles, I think also reveals a need for really strong writing skills. That's my dog in the background, if you're curious. Um, no, it's fine. I have, I have, I have two monitors, too. Yeah, they're, she, they're, they might show up at some point, too. So, you know, they, they like to be on yeah, shows. Yeah. So, so she she loves to make an appearance <laughs> and just to let everybody know that she lives here, too, even though she's cool. not on the show. That's cool. Well, I said, um, I said through all of the return to home thing, our dogs love that yeah. we're home. Our cats aren't sure. Uh, you know, because <laughs> the cats are like, well... My slave is here, so there's an advantage, I guess. I can right, get right. more done with my slave. <laughs> but, you know, but the dog is like, you're home all day. Really? Yeah. All day? You know, and um, <laughs> so, yeah, that's that's my digression. I'm not an anti-cat person. We have two cats and we have two dogs. I I, I have to admit, I think I love the dogs just a little bit more. <laughs> uh, yeah. So, but that's just me being me. <laughs> For sure. Uh, but I do want to talk about Zoom and virtual meetings with clients because, I mean, I know for me personally and for a lot of business owners where you're not geographically locked in to a client base. So if you have an internet-based business or a SaaS company or you're selling software or, you know, and you don't have to only sell to people that live close to you, being able to leverage virtual tools to be able to create those interactions, develop those relationships and get those clients is really valuable what do you do? Like, how do you set yourself up for success when you're getting into those virtual meetings? How do you make those things a home run, both for you and for the client, their experience that they're like, wow, these, these guys have their act together. They know what they're doing. They're coming prepared. I feel like I'm being served even before I become a client or customer. Like, like how do you foster that kind of a sales environment where 
it's it's much more collaborative instead of we're sitting across the table from each other and we got the, the stare down going on. Yeah, yeah. Well, I I mean, for one thing, try to build a culture where the minute somebody's on mute, eight people don't say you're on mute. I mean, there are so many things that are just like borderline <laughs> annoying. Bob knows he's on mute. Bob keeps putting himself on mute. Just let Bob suffer that the first three words of whatever he says for the rest of his life, no one will ever hear. Like, that's Bob's problem, you know? I mean, there's some dynamic things that just drive me crazy. Uh, but I, um, audio's king. I would say that. Um, I think that's a, that's a big, big, big deal. Um, and, and so I, I police it all the time in my company. And even so, like, I feel like I still have to go around with a stick. Sometimes, you know, there was somebody, uh, you know, I, I can say this cause it's, I'm not gonna say which employee all of a sudden I could tell this employee had for whatever reason decided that using their laptop microphone was like, okay for client meetings. And I like waited about 24 hours and I said, can you stop using your laptop microphone? And the answer was, well, my AirPods died. And I said, well, get new AirPods. We buy those for you. I mean, like, I, I think we're, we don't recognize how much of a distraction those things are when we just don't used attack the right way. Um, I think the other thing is, um, you know, remote meetings are funny. I, I think we, we don't treat them the same way we do in-person meetings where we're a little bit more willing to have a four and a half minute meeting, um, or a hallway meeting. You know, it seems like remote meetings are always 30 minutes. And I would say as a company leader, like one of the easiest things you can do to increase productivity and as a sales team member, the easiest way that you can get a lot of um, love from your clients is give them a seven minute meeting, right? Whether you schedule it shorter or you schedule it for half an hour, but you get out of it and you say, hey, look, I'm sure you probably need time to unbold your inbox. Like, I'm going to, I'm going to be the guy that gives you 17 minutes of the 30 back. Right. Um, I, so I think that's one thing too, is like, um, making sure that you don't make everything a half an hour meeting. Cause it's just, I think it's just the way it is. And I, I wish it, I wish it wasn't. Um, I would also say show up on video, you know, um, it's, I get it. Sometimes I don't like occasionally if I feel like I, I'm just a little too, sugar low to really drive a good meeting. And I'm going to drive a better one. If I don't have to be like on camera and on audio, I will, I will sometimes shunt down to that. I even use a conferencing solution called Uber conference. Um, that's part of, they hardly ever call it anymore. It's now part of dial pad. Uh, but what I love about it, it's pinless. So these guys went out and they bought like a bunch of actual phone numbers like a million years ago. I interviewed the CEO of it on my podcast when I had one. And it's, it's a whole interesting story about how they ended up buying a lot of phone numbers. So for them, somebody just dials a phone number. There's no pin. So when I feel like, you know, hey, this is my seventh meeting of the day and I don't want to be on video, but I don't want it to be like they're on video and then I'm not. I'll set up the meeting just on my Uber conference and just be like, hey, I can only be on audio today, which nobody questions. Right. And then you just do a phone call. And last time I checked, we sold a ton of stuff in the eighties and nineties and the aughts through the phone. So it's not like you can't win or move a deal forward through the phone, but then you get it out of that idea of like, well, why aren't you on video? Um, but generally speaking, I would say the more you can be on, on video, the better. Um, and yeah, so 
get out of the meeting before it's up. Don't hold on to the thing. Don't set everything for half an hour. Have great audio. Have really good video. And 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 be okay just doing a phone call. I mean, we're not there's days where you just don't need to be in frame, right? You know, and that's okay. But just be engaged while you're just on the phone. Um, so that's at least those those are some things. I I will say one thing about a client though, real fast. Um, um you know, you're used to um being told like wait for the silence, right? You know, Henry Kissinger, whoever speaks first loses, right? You know, kind of thing. Um, but what I find is the people will do that in conversation, but they won't do that when they share a document in a meeting. Um, and this is an open secret, by the way, what I'm about to say next. I'm not giving anything away about Amazon Web Services that, that the planet doesn't. Uh, if you deliver a readout to Amazon Web Services, say a research uh, findings deck, they will spend the first 15 minutes of the meeting and it's not always precisely 15, obviously, but somewhere in that range, reading in the meeting what you sent them. So that the remaining 40, and by the way, that is an absolute silence. So that the next 45 minutes of the meeting can actually be productive. Because it's not productive to have a meeting where Bob's read it, but Mary hasn't, or vice versa. Because then we have this impedance mismatch, right? Bob or Mary are trying to come up to speed on everything that Bob or Mary said. And only toward the end is everybody actually on the same page. So I, I've stolen from that playbook sometimes. And I've done it a couple ways. Like if a client really looks like they haven't read anything we've sent them, I've actually sometimes, why don't we reschedule this for tomorrow? Like I want to give you guys time to review it. I don't do that that often. I've done that occasionally. But more often it's like learn how to be silent for multiple minutes perhaps while you leave the client room to actually read what you gave them. Um, it wouldn't seem so awkward in an in-person meeting, but it's really awkward in Zoom. It feels odd, right, to sit there for 15 minutes in silence. Um, and I don't think you always need 15. That's, that's Amazon's kind of extreme way of doing things. But I have to tell you, when you get to minute 16 in an Amazon meeting, you get good questions. And they're uniform because everybody read it, right? And, every, and there's a moral there when it comes to sending proposals, you know, having people review contracts, you know, all that kind of stuff. So I, there's just some different dynamic there that I think you have to take into account. Yeah, and, and learning how to really lean into the platform's strengths instead of complaining about its weaknesses, right? Totally. And, and how do we totally. leverage this to make an even better impression? You know, because you could sell this as, you know, you don't have to mark out time for me to fly in and meet with you for like a full day, it's like, we're just going to grab 20 minutes on your calendar. I'll work with your assistant to find something that works and we'll just hop on and whatever, whatever makes sense to you. Like, well, it's a little bit, these tools can't like, unlock other opportunities, but yeah. 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 When it's a little bit like, um, I remember what happened when we started our first company back in, you know, 2000, I've only had two, right. But I had one that I grew and sold and then I've, I've owned this one. And, um, the first one, you know, we were, uh, we were remote, like a hundred percent remote pretty much, um, for a number of years in 2000 when that was really odd. And, and sure. even when yeah. tech, we didn't think that was a, even tech thought that was odd and we would fly to client sites to close deals. I agree with that much, but like, but everything else was at home. And I remember clients would say, um, 
and, and this sounds so odd now, but they used to say it back then. So you don't have an office? You know, hear the tone. So you don't have an office? So you must not be real, mm-hmm. right? And right. I would be like, and, and, and if somebody was, I, I said it with a smile enough that I could get away with it. I go, no, but we, but you could pay for it. And they would go, <laughs> what did you say? Yeah, I mean, I mean, you could pay for it. I mean, we'd be happy to add it to the statement of work. Oh, yeah, you're right. Okay, so so, so somebody's got to pay for it, right? Yeah, and like, and so I think, um, yeah, I think I think it's the same thing, right? Like, let me just grab 20 minutes of your time remotely, and I don't necessarily. You don't have to meet me in the lobby. You don't have to come down. You don't have to cross six buildings on the campus to go find me. We don't have to go find a place to meet. I mean, um. Yeah. So back to a point you raised earlier, I think, I think not being present is a poor excuse for sale, you know, not being successful in sales. I'm not saying it doesn't help occasionally, but you can be as successful as the guy who's flying everywhere. hundred percent. You do not have to get on a plane to close deals. I mean, I, I, I'll just leave it as firm as that. And I know there's somebody listening that's just screaming right now. Yes, you do. And I'm like, <laughs> you don't, you don't have to get on a plane to close deals. You don't. Just leave it at that. So you're getting on a plane for different reasons. Totally legitimate, whatever those may be. But you do not have to get on a plane to close deals. I don't care what the deal is. Yeah, well, I mean, if you got if you got per diem, user to loser, right? Uh, well, right. Well, yeah. And again, I mean, <laughs> when you're not the yeah, owner I mean, of the company, you, you think like, that way. And yeah. you can learn about clients. Like I used to say, like I was mm-hmm. a corporate cultural anthropologist because I would go. I learned a lot by being in the building of a big tech company, right? I learned kind of how the company was, and sure, that would help in some ways. But once I kind of had that zeitgeist in my head, and I'd been doing it for long enough, I mean, only so much of that changes over time. Um. And so, you know, there's kind of background radiation of a sort that you can pick up. But yeah, I, to me, I would much rather just be home and having all the joys of that and still closing deals. For sure. And then uh, kind of as we, we start to wrap up, I would love to just hear about your companies, like how you are leaning into these platforms to grow yourself, right? Because it's, it's obviously one thing to say, on a principal level or practically like these are the things that we've seen work or that we encourage other people to do. Uh, but I'm always curious, like what are the specific strategies that you are utilizing now to grow your company with sales and marketing? Um, because th- those will obviously be really refined through trial and error. And we tried this thing and sure. it didn't work. And then we tried this thing and it didn't work and this popped off. So we've really leaned into that. So what are some of the things that you're really focused on now for connecting with your niche customer base, you know, continuing to stab yourself as a market leader and then kind of uh, greasing the skids for the, for the deal flow. Like what, what are the things that you're focused on right now? For me, it always comes down to staying narrow enough. Um, I, you know, I think we, we have so many, um, so many things that want to make us be broad as business owners, right? I mean, there's so many pressures to be broad if you own a business, right? Your staff wants to go tackle different things than they're working on today. The market wants to give you opportunities that are just a little bit outside what you typically do, right? Um, and maybe a lot outside what you do. You maybe do have plans for world domination. I don't, but, uh, you know, I'd like to grow, but I don't have world domination plans, you know? And so you just see everything as an opportunity. And, and for me, you know, we engage in a lot of 
activities, you know, whether it's email outreach and blogging and SEO and, you know, thought leadership and, and all those things. But if you were to ask me the thing that makes it work, it's staying narrow because I think ultimately that has a trillion benefits, right? I mean, one, the customers are easier to refer to each other. The testimonials have more resonance. Um, you get better at serving a certain type of client. So your costs go down. Um, you can actually charge a premium at the same time while your costs are going down because you have all the social proof of serving a particular space. Um, you have um, a tool set that's fairly um, optimized for serving that kind of market. And, and at the same time, I feel like you're, you're lining up with an interesting cultural trend that sometimes I've just called the age of narrow just, just to give it a name. Like, and I don't mean it's like narrow thinking. What I mean is it's like we have the ability to access narrow streams of entertainment and thought somewhat to our benefit, right? Like if you want to watch, you know, historical British period dramas, you could just watch that for the rest of your life. We haven't had that kind of opportunity, right? Uh, you've got media streams that are, can be extremely narrow that you can look at. Um, you've got even purchase funnels, right? You want to order a bunch of potato chips from the UK off of Amazon and that's the only kind of potato chips you want to buy and you live in the States, well, you can go do that. If it sounds like I've done that as a gift, I have. It's an interesting little free trick. If, you, if you're struggling to find a gift for someone, go to an Amazon portal that isn't the US and type in the same thing you normally buy. Like I've got a brother-in-law who loves like weird chips. So I just went to amazon.co.uk and was like popular chips in the UK. Go figure. None of them are sold here. Two days later, they're sitting on my doorstep. So, um, but you've got this narrow ability to kind of engage with things. And I think what it does is it forces people to think, well, maybe in my business life, I want the same thing. I want the niche supplier. I believe they're out there. And once you're in that niche, it makes everything easier. So that would be my big piece of advice. As straightforward as it is, I think the challenge is people don't stick to it because the temptations are so strong as a business owner to go broad, to go wide, to spread yourself, to engage with other opportunities. Um, and what you need to do is you need to stay focused on that niche that you know you can serve and you can generate a lot of love from. Um, and that makes sales conversations easier. That makes proposal development easier. It makes the whole thing easier. And if somebody's listening and saying, but I don't want to be a niche. I want to be like massive. I'm like, well, but then grow slowly outward as you go do that. It's the biggest piece of advice I usually give an entrepreneur is narrow up. Um, and it makes everything better. So that would, that would be my big, my big takeaway for people is, you know, in, especially in a time when, as we're recording this, at least, you know, there, there's all the discussion about, are we in a hot economy forever? Are we not in a hot economy? What's that going to mean? Right. You know, um, when you're in a cycle of somewhat fiscal instability, it's even more important because, you know, people want to buy work with vendors that they can really trust. And, um, you know, you declaring to the world, this is where my limits are. This is where I feel I serve the market the best. And this is where I don't. That creates that trust right from the get go. They don't have to go look for somebody else to tell them what you don't do. Um, you're basically helping educate them on that from the beginning. And we, and we do that to very, very good effect in all of our marketing. I mean, if you look at our marketing, it is super clear. If you're not the right fit, don't even bother showing up. Um, 
And I don't know how many times people have told us, like, that's that's why I picked you guys. Because you made it clear what you don't do. It's this very weird thing. Uh, probably a good place for me to close unless you got other questions. I mean, I've probably generated better deals by telling people what we don't do than what we do. And that's happened for me my whole life. You know, and I and I it took me a while to figure out actually what it was and why was why that was happening. Like it seems kind of obvious, but at, but underneath it, I think what emotionally is happening is people instantly feel a sense of trust because whenever you buy something, what is the thing that you're looking for? You know marketing lies to you, right? I mean, you you know it does. You know there's an element of that. So you go to Amazon and what do you sort by? The five-star reviews that say sponsored next to them? Hell no. You go sort by one-star reviews or you see how many one-star reviews are, right? It's this horrible thing where in a way we search for the negative. We search for the limits of the thing. And so if you go around and you say, I'm in this narrow space and I, and I punctuate that, like the period at the end of the sentence is, and this is who I don't serve, it's like you leap past all that. They don't have to go look for who who is like, educating them or telling them or appear on where these guys shouldn't be used. You just took that off the table. And the amount of trust that you're at at that point is huge. Um, so I'd say that's the final piece of homework. Go look at your website. If anywhere in the website, does it say what you don't do? Is there any limit to what you offer the market? And try it out. Make Put some limits, a little bit of crayon around that. And I bet what's going to happen is the minute you start doing that, you'll actually get better deals and more deals in the space that you actually want. Well, I think that's a great place to wrap. Uh, Sean, where can people go to learn more about you, learn more about Cascade Insights? Uh, where would you like people to connect with you online? Uh, CascadeInsights.com is the easiest place. If you want to reach out to me directly, just uh, Sean, S-E-A-N at CascadeInsights.com. And, uh, and to be clear, while I've made a big, you know, jump up and down on the trampoline of be narrow, like... Um, I, I absolutely am happy to talk to anybody in an entrepreneurial role who just is just curious about how to make things work for them. Uh, if any of this resonated, like I, I don't need to talk to people who are just a client, right? From that standpoint, I'm always happy to pay it forward. Um, but if you are a B2B technology company, uh, drop us a note and we'd be happy to help you with positioning and messaging and all that good stuff. Awesome. Thank you so much for your time, Sean. Thanks, man. So I hope you enjoyed that interview conversation as much as I did. I think my number one takeaway from my conversation with Sean was towards the end. We're talking about, started talking about going narrow as a way of making everything easier. Uh, I've certainly seen that to be true for myself. You know, when I first started the business, the company that I have right now, it was, I had a lot more things going on. There were a lot more things that I was offering. There was a lot more things that I said I could do for clients. And then over time, just realized that, hey, if I just really hone in and focus on the things that people are asking me for, which is podcast production and leave social media marketing and email marketing campaigns and other things like that to other companies to do, then I can double down on the thing that I'm really special at, that my superpowers, my unfair advantage. And that has become the reputation of the company. And, and I'm really grateful for that. And so I've seen that advice work for me and myself. And so I hope that you take it to heart as well. Really get clear on the things you don't do, the things that your company doesn't offer, because that's only going to create clarity in the minds of your prospects when they're coming in and they're interacting with you because they're going to see, okay, this is what they do really well. These are the things they don't do. So now I have a clear sense of what they offer to me and my business and my company in order to 
you know, move forward in a great working relationship together. All right. So I hope you enjoyed that conversation with Sean. Definitely go and check out uh, Cascade Insights if you're in the B2B tech space. Uh, if not, you know, connect with them on LinkedIn, send them some love. And uh, we're going to be doing these interviews more often now. So uh, recently we had shifted to an every other week cadence, but we're coming back to week to week. So every single Tuesday, you'll be getting me in your podcast app, which I'm super excited about. Got some phenomenal interviews lined up, some phenomenal solo episodes coming down the pipeline the rest of this year. I can't wait to share those with you. And until next time, be honest. (laughs) 